0: So my lead-off question today is, um, can people tell you've been with Jesus? All right. So we're going to talk about degrees of separation uh, a little bit here this morning. Uh, And part of this is obviously a coronavirus conversation. The Washington, D.C., priest who has now been diagnosed with the coronavirus, offered communion and shook hands with more than 500 worshipers last week, Uh, All of those worshipers who visited the Christ Church in Georgetown are now being asked to self-quarantine. Church is canceled for the first time um, since the 1800s. Degrees of separation is really going to be the ongoing conversation that we have, uh, not only here in America, but around the world. How many degrees of separation are there between you and a person who has tested positive for the coronavirus? Uh, Retiring Representative Mark Meadows, Republican from North Carolina, also the incoming White House chief of staff, became the latest uh, conservative lawmaker to self-quarantine after acknowledging that he had come into contact with an individual who tested positive for the coronavirus. Um, Already self-quarantined are Senators Ted Cruz, Representatives Paul Gosar, Doug Collins, Matt Gaetz, um, uh, Democratic – let's see – Looks like Representative Julia Brownlee has closed her office in D.C. working remotely, maintaining, quote, socially distancing practices. All right. That just might be an introvert who doesn't want to touch people. But, you know, you get my point. Okay, so um, the big picture. There's going to be a lot of conversation about degrees of separation. All right. So let's let's as Christians consider if people um, can tell we've been with Jesus. Right. Have we been with Jesus enough that he has affected us in ways that are obvious to others. And so I recognize that I'm turning this conversation about degrees of separation completely on its head, right? We we would say, hey, I don't necessarily want to discover that there's zero degrees of separation between me and a person um, who, who has contracted and tested positive for the coronavirus. Um, there are people who avoid Jesus like that, by the way, and avoid Christians avoid people who have been with Jesus in the same way that you and I might think we want to avoid people who have been directly exposed um, to the coronavirus. There are people who avoid people like you and me who spend time with Jesus. So the degrees of separation conversation is an interesting one to have as Christians. And so I have in mind here Acts chapter 4. You should read all of verses 1 to 13. Um, but essentially, the uh, the end of this passage is the acknowledgement after uh, after Peter and John have uh, have stood up and said things about Jesus and represented themselves um, in a way that went far beyond what you would ordinarily imagine these these men these fishermen um, would be prepared to stand up and do in a public setting, basically in. Uh, in the equivalent of what you and I would think of as like the U.S. Senate or or the Supreme Court. Like, you know, roll those together, and that's what you have in terms of the audience that Peter and John were brought before in Acts chapter 4. Verse 13 says this. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, when they recognized they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And that's when they recognized they'd been with Jesus. So that's who I want to be today. I want to be the person— um, who others recognize, you know what? She's been with Jesus, all right? Zero degrees of separation between Carmen and Jesus. I want people to say the same of you. Um, and so we're going to have to spend time with Jesus. We're going to have to spend time in the Word of God. We're going to have to get to know the Savior. We're going to have to um, really draw near to Him by the power of the Holy Spirit in order that when we go out there into the world that God so loves, um, under the Great Commission and the Great Commandment, that other people would be like, you know what? I can tell. He's been with Jesus. She's been with Jesus. Um, And then let's hope, let's hope that's catching. When I come back, I'm going to be talking with Mark Caleb Smith. And yes, he and I are going to turn our attention to the coronavirus. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Now, Dr. Mark Caleb Smith from Cedarville University. Welcome back, sir.
1: Hey, Carmen. How are you doing today?
0: I am well. I am well. It is well with my soul. I feel like it is well with my body, but you know, who knows? Who knows? I might be fully contaminated. I have no idea. How How are you? How about you?
1: Uh, doing well. I mean, things are going well. I think on the whole. I mean, I don't. I guess I'm like most people when you think of this whole coronavirus. I don't know how to react to it. Uh, I you know part I just don't know enough about it the science of it of course I'm a political scientist not a medical scientist at all and so I kind of agree with you it's a matter of faith and trusting and uh, be smart about things but yeah it's 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 concerning but it's it is interesting
0: uh, so it's the unknown that seems to have people yeah. most um, most nervous maybe is the word uh, and so I do think that people. People panic and behave in strange ways because they either lack information or they lack accurate information or they lack confidence in the information that they're receiving. They fear that they're not going to have the resources that they need um, either internally or, uh, you know, or financial resources to um, self-quarantine for a period of time. I mean, you know, what if my school closes? What am I going to do about my kid? What if my work is disrupted? Do I have paid sick leave? How does that work? Um should I travel to meetings? I mean I'm supposed right. to be speaking, you know, at a university chapel next Monday. I don't right. I don't know if they really like do they really still want me to come? Like I don't know. My city has a couple of cases. Their their town doesn't. You know, like right. do they really want me? So I do think that it's um uh you know it's the unknown that's most frightening to people, and that's more a uh, a sociological question than it is uh, maybe a a political or medical question. um Tell us what's happening where you are. You are in the great state of Ohio. I know that there right. are some cases identified there um yep. you're also an academician on a on a college campus. Just talk with us a little bit about how you see um institutions responding in your state.
1: Well, as you said, Ohio <clears throat> announced yesterday that we have our first three cases of coronavirus. Uh, we don't know anything more about the location of those cases. It hasn't been publicized yet. Uh, and the, Governor DeWine declared a state of emergency in Ohio in order to begin uh, sort of mitigation and containment procedures. And so this is the first time it's really confronted us directly at all. And uh, as a university, for we have a task force that's been put together. Uh, our president has designated someone to head that task force. Uh, retired General Lauren Reno, who works here at the university, uh, Air Force General, is is heading that task force and sort of figuring out what our best response is. But Ohio State, of course, sort of the big dog academically, when you think of just numbers in the state of Ohio, uh, they announced that they're canceling classes for the duration of March. And so they're not going to have face-to-face classes for the next month, basically, and it'll be interesting to see whether we start to see other institutions make similar choices. You know, here at Cedarville, we're relatively small, certainly compared to Ohio State, we're small. Uh, but we have students who are all over the world who just come back from mission trips across the globe. Uh, we had spring break last week. We have students who are coming in from different parts of the country, from Washington, from California, from New York, from New Jersey. And so this is it's going to be something we have to deal with, I think, at some level. Um, Canceling classes is a really interesting idea. You know, 20 years ago, this would have been unthinkable. Maybe even five years ago, it would have been unthinkable because if you cancel classes, that's the end of the semester. Uh, yeah. But now people are trying to figure out ways to do this digitally and through uh, online learning platforms to make it a little bit more uh, possible. But it, even that has concerns with it. You know, none of these solutions are, I think, are going are to fix everything, but they will limit uh, student contact to some extent, which I guess is the whole point.
0: Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. Um I have I have some face-to-face meetings that have now transitioned to like Zoom meetings or, you know, or other kinds of online platforms. Um lots of people talking about uh moving what they do almost entirely to Facebook Live. Churches having conversations about using their streaming platforms um not only for streaming worship but for streaming their Sunday school classes, you know, just trying to avoid um places where people gather in very close proximity to one another um, and, you know, for churches bring their babies, right? I mean, I, you know, I think we got all kinds of questions about the young and the uh, the, the very young and the very old um, as a part of this. All right. So let's talk because, um, you know, the, the the coronavirus is one thing going on. But we also have uh, this very robust political season that we are in. Maybe we should take a very quick break because Paul's going to be suggesting uh, in my ear here that we do that. So let's take a very brief break and then we come back. Um, Love to talk with you about the fact that today is what, like Super Tuesday part two. Um, We certainly have people in our live listening uh, audience who are going to the polls today. So I want to talk about that. And then I'd also love to talk about this headline I'm reading about video manipulation and, uh, and social media platforms. So all of that up next with Mark Caleb Smith from Cedarville University. We'll be right back. Returning to my conversation with Dr. Mark Caleb Smith from Cedarville University. Um, all right. So today, uh, voters in Washington, North Dakota, Missouri, Michigan, Idaho, all going to the polls. Um, Super Tuesday, part two. Tell us, um, tell us what we need to know.
1: Well, the big prize today is Michigan, 125 delegates are up for grabs. And so if uh, Joe Biden can win Michigan decisively uh, with a big margin and collect a, a you know heavy amount of delegates out of that, then he's going to start to put some real distance between himself and Bernie Sanders uh, to the point where it's going to be difficult for Sanders to recover. Um, there are other states obviously voting today. Washington has a fair number of delegates as well. Uh, but the, I mean, the math of this is starting to get really difficult for Bernie because uh, the Democrats divide up their delegates proportionally, uh, which means that you can't just win a state and then win all the delegates from that state. And so if Biden keeps winning states by small margins, relatively speaking, and even if Bernie wins the occasional state with a mar- small margin, it's just going to be tough for him to overcome this uh, this delegate lead. So it's been fascinating to watch. You know, I don't think I've seen an electorate change. Uh, This quickly, you know, over just really a 10 to 12 day period where the race looked one way and now it looks totally different. Uh, I don't think we've ever seen this before in the primary era.
0: So this this uh, may or may not be um, 100 percent verifiable. But I have heard that the Biden campaign was trying to get some rules changed related to the debate so that Biden could sit down during the debate.
1: Yep.
0: Um, how, how do you feel like that would play um in the American electorate if a if we have reached the stage where the candidates are now so old and so tired they can't stand to debate one another? Like it's not that they can't stand each other, but they like right. physically can't stand long enough to debate one another.
1: Yeah, I think it would be I think it's an issue, no doubt about it. I don't think you can get away from that issue. Uh looking at the remaining candidates in the race, they're all into their seventies. Um when you look at Bernie and President Trump and Joe Biden collectively, and it's it's it matters. You know, 15 to 20 years ago, these would have been disqualifying ages potentially. Uh, people made a big deal about Ronald Reagan's age; he would be, you know, right in the thick of this thing. And so, uh, I think it matters tremendously. And I think especially for Joe Biden, it matters not because we're just concerned about his uh, physical stamina, perhaps, but you know i'm not a physician i'm not trying to diagnose him but he ser- he seems to be struggling on the stump he seems to really have a difficult time stringing uh thoughts together and keeping a coherent focus when he's answering questions and things like that and my guess is his campaign is going to really try to limit his exposure uh to 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 big events and to um persistent questioning And they're going to try to limit him and kind of hide him a little bit between now and the convention as much as they can get away with. And so uh, to me, it's a concern. Uh, No question about it. The Democratic Party will try to sell it. As you know, this is we're consolidating around Joe. We have no issues here. Uh, But I think it matters. And I think it would matter more if the Republican candidate was going to be 50 years old. Then you'd see this real stark contrast between a young, vigorous candidate on the one side and an older candidate on the other. Uh, President Trump is older, as I said, but to his credit, he is energetic. You know, he certainly comes off as more energetic and more focused and more engaged in discussions right now than Joe Biden does. Yeah, I think I think it's a big deal uh, and it's not going to go away.
0: Just for the record, I stand for the complete two hours of the program every morning. Just 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 for the record. Yeah. Well, yeah, because, right. You have more energy when you're like standing up and you're engaged, like talking to people. I can talk with my hands that way. Anyway. Yeah, no doubt about it. I do that when I teach also. Right. Exactly. OK, so um, let's talk now about I'm going to I'm going to use the term deep fakes and I'm going to raise that as maybe my one of my primary concerns leading into uh, the heat of this election cycle. Um, the headline is related to, tw- to Twitter and video manipulation, but video manipulation related to this campaign cycle and, and the reality of deep fakes. Introduce us to this topic and then um, and maybe highlight what concerns you most.
1: You know, since we've, the age of the internet has really led to what we might call the democratization of information. In other words, we don't get our information from three or four news outlets or three or four newspapers or television uh, networks or even radio programs. That information comes at us from every possible direction. Uh, whenever you go online, you just get flooded with information. What that means is there are really very few controls for that information. There's no editorial process. There's no... Uh, Someone sitting there deciding which video gets published, and which video doesn't get published, and we just get flooded with it. Um, Now it's possible for people to construct video that's um, really, really difficult, if not impossible to tell, that it's been edited and that it's fake. Um, Now, if you can compare it to a transcript or if you know exactly what happened and you have a lot of eyewitness testimony on the one hand, then you have a video that looks like it was doctored on the other, then you have a contrast. But... What do we do with video where there is no alternative source of information what do we do with something that looks fake and that looks damaging or looks damaging but we don't know whether it's fake and it's impossible for the person at the center of it to verify that they didn't do something um this is getting into a really tough place politically speaking you know how are we going to be able to hold candidates accountable for things that they may have said or may have done Well, we can't verify that they actually said it or they actually did it. Um, The old saying, a picture is worth a thousand words, uh, but now we're gonna argue about whether or not the picture is real. And that puts us in a a really difficult place. Um, Yeah, I hope it makes people more critical of their sources of information. I hope it really makes them think through, where am I seeing this from? What's the outlet it's coming from? Is this a trustworthy source? Uh, And that raises a whole set of questions all by itself, of course.
0: So let's talk about that. Let's talk about yeah. um trusting our eyes. Um and then let's let's also talk about that discernment that's required yeah. to actually get to the place. I mean, as a Christian, I should care about what is true, and I should also um desire to be a person who only passes along to others information that I am confident is true because it it's going to reflect back on me if I pass along something that is not true and trustworthy. That, that is going to reflect poorly on Jesus. I mean, right. I mean, he is the one who I'm ultimately representing in the world. So talk with us about um, trusting what we see and then maybe how we go about verifying that what we see is true.
1: You know, to some extent, we're all kind of reporters right now. I know people don't want to wear that label, but, you know, back in the day, if you're reporting a story, you needed to verify a source. You need to get a corroborating witness or testimony saying that uh, I have information, I can verify that information now that I've, I'm happy to go publish it or go run with the story. I think we should take a similar approach when we see, see stuff online. You know, here's a video that I'm looking at. It seems so perfect. You know, it makes exactly the point that I'd like to make. It highlights the strength of my candidate or it highlights the weaknesses of an opponent perfectly. Well, go look and see if someone else is reporting this. Is this coming from another place? Can you connect it to a news agency? Do you have multiple platforms confirming this information? Uh, if you do see that, then you can be a little bit more confident. I think the way you're looking at it is real. But if you just see a random website connected to a blog you've never heard of, uh, or a Twitter account that has two followers and only one tweet connected to it, then you should be pretty skeptical of, the, of this information. I, I agree with you. You know, retweeting it or reposting it or commenting about it and putting it out there in social media. Uh, we need to take some responsibility for that you know we need to own it and if we can't own it and feel comfortable owning it then we shouldn't hit send you know we shouldn't hit tweet uh but in, you know in this day and age that that kind of runs counter culturally uh, but we should be comfortable with that as believers
0: yeah hit 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 the internal pause button yep. before before you um retweet or repost or <clears throat> even like um yep. uh, something that that really just confirms your own bias, as opposed yep. to um, uh, maybe adding something substantive to the the conversation in a positive way. That's that's I think what we want to be doing as people of faith. We want to be adding substance to the conversation. We want that substance to be um, right and accurate, as accurate as possible. And if and when we ever pass along information that we later discover is inaccurate or false or misleading we ought to be the first people to say so, right? Because that will be the first step in rebuilding uh, rebuilding trust with others.
1: Um, Yeah, absolutely. Take take responsibility for it and be willing to to stand up for it and say, I made a mistake. Here's what we do. That's right.
0: Yeah, exactly. Mark Caleb Smith from Cedarville University, thank you so much for being with us today. Blessings uh, and health upon you and the people on your campus today.
1: Same to you, Carmen. Uh, Blessings on you and your listeners. I hope things continue to go well in your neck of the woods.
0: Thank you. Likewise. All right. We'll be right back. All right. So lots of folks worried about the next generation, worried about um, education in this country and how kids are being educated. So in January of 2020, the University of Notre Dame, uh, through their sociology department, released a study called Good Soil. It's a comparative study of um, alumni from classical Christian schools, all right, um, and, and other forms of, of educational processes. And the, the real question is, if we compare these students and we look at their life outcomes, um, what do we see? So as evidence of how we educate our young people, what is the long-term evidence? What are the life outcomes related to how we educate um, our kids? And so I thought it would be uh, really fun to have a conversation about not only this study, but about Christian education, classical Christian education, what's working today in terms of producing the kinds of life outcomes that you and I might be interested in seeing in our own kids. So up next, David Goodwin. He is the president of the Association of Classical Christian Schools. He'll be ne- he'll be here next.
1: Every day around the world, thousands of teens run away from home. No two cases are the same, but all parents who've been abandoned feel a deep sense of pain and failure. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. If you've ever had a child run away from home, you know the heartache that consumes you. There's nothing like the loneliness of a quiet household and the unanswered phone calls. Though I can't bring your child home, I can encourage you with this. The principles you've instilled in your teen have not been wasted. The seeds you've sown in his life will come to fruition, just as the Bible promised. Waiting for that return on investment and the homecoming of your prodigal will never be easy. It's your choice to wait patiently for the runaway and cling to
2: hope. Want more parenting help from Mark Gregston? Find encouragement through articles, books, and more at parentingtodaysteens.org.
0: Education for just a moment. You and I um, both know that training up a child in the way they should go is a part of our sacred trust as adults um, in terms of our influence over the children in our lives. And so, how are you training up the children? Within your sphere of influence, how are you training them up in the way that they should go? In order that when they grow up, they will not depart from it, right? So that is about, that's a question of life outcomes. It's not, did I, um, you know, did I teach my kid the right things when they were little? The question is, as I look at them when they are young adults and then when they are adults raising the next generation, am I seeing the kinds of life outcomes that I would have hoped to have seen based on the way that I chose to educate them. And so we do have a really wide range of educational choices in the United States of America. You can choose to send your child to a public school, um, and that might be the right answer for some people under some circumstances. I, I went to public school all but one year, um, K through 12, um, and, and have one child uh, now who is in public school. And part of that is because as a special needs student, uh, you know, you can bring a lot more to bear on a special needs student in public school than you can um, in most private schools and, and and let's say classical Christian settings. And that's because they're just smaller and they're not necessarily designed to bring a constellation of resources to, um, to bear on a student with, with special needs. So this is not... Uh, you're not going to hear me say that there is a one-size-fits-all solution to the question of education today. What you are going to hear me say is that we as parents and grandparents bear a huge burden of responsibility in terms of how we choose to educate our children today because uh, there is real school choice. You can choose um, if you have the capacity to do it, and I would say that that is also a big question, Uh, but if you have the capacity to do it, you could homeschool your kids. Um, if you have the capacity to do it, you could send your kids to a private school. If you have the capacity to do it, you could send your kids to a classical Christian school. We happen to uh, love a particular classical Christian school in our community. Um, we have one, um, one graduate of a classical school in our community and another who is a student there now um, as a junior. And I would say I'm a huge fan of the The educational process that both of them are uh, well that the one who is now an adult and married and working in the world and um, has those positive life outcomes we might be looking for uh in terms of educational outcomes, and then I certainly hope the same for um for Eliana, who is now a junior and so let's just ask the question: how do i judge how do I judge how i'm educating my kid like right? what are the questions that I'm even asking? Like, how do, how do I know? Is there anything out there that I could look at and say, okay, here is some verifiable evidence, um, some some sort of study that has actually asked real questions about the outcomes related to education? Well, the answer to that question is yes. In fact, there is something called good soil. It's a comparative study of ACCS, okay, so that's the Association of Classical Christian Schools, ACCS, a comparative study of ACCS alumni life outcomes evaluated and ranked against, let's say, homeschoolers, evangelical, Catholic, public and private preparatory school students in the United States of America who are now ages 23 to 43. And they looked at um, seven different life outcomes in order to sort of profile uh, in terms of where these individuals are now, choices that they made during college, choices they have made in their career, their life outlook, their ongoing Christian commitment, um, their their Christian lifestyle—like, are is there evidence? Is there fruit that they are living as Christians? and then um, the, you know, the relative sort of independence of the way that they operate in the world in terms of the application of their thoughts and their influence in the larger culture. So um, uh, I'll just go ahead and give you the spoiler alert here. Um, it found that, yes, alumni of, uh, of schools that intentionally approach education through a classical Christian methodology— the outcomes for those young adults and adults. So again, the people we're looking at are now ages 23 to 43. The outcomes for um, people who who were educated in a classical Christian school, those outcomes are far better, like wildly better. Uh, the study found that 90 percent of, uh, of ACCS, so again, the Association of Classical Christian Schools alumni, attend church three or more times a month. Now, that is an overwhelmingly different statistic than the culture at large. 83% go weekly to small groups, 70% read their Bibles. Um, and and, if, and when you compare that to what's happening in the culture writ large, I, I hope your jaw is dropping um, in the same way that, that mine did. All right, joining me now is the president of the uh, Association of Classical Christian Schools. His name is David Goodwin. David, welcome to Mornings with Carmen.
2: Well, thank you. It's good to be here.
0: So you have a long history with classical Christian uh, education and institutions in this country, not only um, as, uh, you know, as, as the person who was the head of the Ambrose School for 11 years, our listeners in certainly in Idaho um, would be very, very familiar with that. Um, but you've also been now working with the Association of Classical Christian Schools, for a period of time. You guys um, were a part of commissioning this study at the University of Notre Dame. Um, tell, us, tell us a little bit about the study and then maybe the outcomes that you're most excited about.
2: Well, yeah, the movement is uh, as schools go relatively young, you know, we uh, really started to grow in the early 90s. And so it's been uh, only recently that we've had a, a sufficient number of graduates to get a statistical sample that would work uh, to compare our schools to schools across the country in other forms. So the study had been done before we were involved with it uh, several times by the CARDIS organization, and it studied uh, five different types of schools, uh, public schools, uh, private secular schools, uh, Catholic schools, evangelical Protestant schools, and home schools. And so what we did was – We signed on to the study here in 2018-19 to uh, have our graduates uh, looked at in the course of the same study, and that's where this data came from.
0: And some of these outcomes, um, David, that we're looking at are uh, really pretty uh, astonishing. Ninety percent of Association of Classical Christian School alumni attend church three or more times a month. 83% go weekly to small groups. 70% read their Bible every week. 80% contend they have an obligation to practice spiritual disciplines. I mean, when we compare that to what's going on culturally in this same age group, let's say millennials, um, that is just not the evidence that we get, even for those who, um, you know, have been raised in the, in the church, but not necessarily educated classic in, in a classical Christian way.
2: Right. Well, while the numbers uh, did surprise us a little bit, I've traveled over the course of the last five or six years to probably 100 of these schools around the country. And so it really, when you're in the schools, you start to see what's happening. Um, They really approach education so differently that um, it it isn't too surprising that the differences uh, in the results are very big.
0: So how about when we come back, let's take a very brief break. When we come back, tell us what is different about a classical Christian education um, tell us what differentiates it because I do think it's going to help listeners understand why these outcomes are different because the process is really different. So I'm going to continue my conversation in just a moment with David Goodwin. He is the president of the Association of Classical Christian Schools. You can find uh, you can find it all at classicalChristian.org. We'll be right back. Continuing my conversation with David Goodwin, he is the president of the Association of Classical Christian Schools. You can, um, you can find them at classicalchristian.org. David, talk with us about what is distinctive about um, ACCS institutions and the approach they take um, educationally, and maybe it's even more than educationally, in the forming of students.
2: Yeah, well that's a, you know that's really the center of it. Uh the forming of students is is the question that was asked many many years ago when we started this movement was uh what happened if we if we threw out everything we thought we knew about education and just said what what is it that we need to start with? And I think you know sort of the um, Abraham Kuyper's quote that not there's not one square inch of the whole domain of human experience over which Christ uh is not sovereign. Um you know, really played into how this movement started. So we just redesigned education around what if, what if Jesus Christ were actually the Lord of, of, of all. And that starts with things like integrating subjects. So we get rid of all the lines between things, because, you know, if you've got one Lord, you've got one subject. It's basically what is truth? What is the nature of this world that we live in? And when you start asking those questions, you train students to think carefully and well about things. We use a method, um, they began well, in ancient times, but the medievals really perfected it. Called the trivium uh, to teach students first how to use language, then how to use logic, and then how to put the two together to come up with uh, what's called, uh, you know, rhetoric. Uh, today, that term has uh, taken a beating, but in the in the truest sense of the form, uh, the word it's really about teaching kids to to think well and speak well, and and you know when they look at all of creation from the science to the math to the literature to the history, it all comes together in Christ. So that's it's, it's kind of complicated uh, when you lift up the hood and start looking under it, like why do we do the Latin, the Greek? You know, they study a lot of Latin and Greek in, in our schools. Um, those things all play into it, but at the at bottom, that's its purpose, and that's what it does.
0: So um, you and I have uh, lots of mutual friends, and so I'm I'm so tempted to just, you know— Geek out and get totally personal, but instead, let's talk about training students with um eloquence, let's talk about inspiring depth and wisdom, cultivating rightly ordered affections. This does not sound like um the three r's plus a little p e
2: <laughs> yeah well, it is you know you you really have the language down there Carmen uh, the uh cultivation of affections um is the centerpiece it was you know originated that phrase uh well. I can't say it was originated, but we we've really mostly studied it from uh Saint Augustine, who originally wrote um on education back in the third century and and you know it seems like ancient history, but you'd be surprised um what those guys were able to come up with, and he basically said that when it comes to um education, what you need to be doing is cultivating students to love what God loves and um to uh, love those things in the right order so that you know um that sounds kind of almost too ethereal to to describe on a radio program but it's really about the the um taking a student from the youngest of ages uh starting to work with them on some you know very fundamental issues about christianity and then starting to bring in it's kind of like baking a cake you just bring in each ingredient you know you bring in the the literature for the young children and you bring in the logic in the middle school and you bring in all these uh, great books of philosophy that, that history has uh, left us. And, and you just bring each one in and you say, how does this relate to what God taught us?
0: All right. So um, if someone is listening right now and they are, you know, their child is five years old and they say, you know what, that sounds great, but I'll wait till high school. Talk about the advantage of starting early.
2: Well, now you're pushing my buttons because, you know, when I went into, the, <laughs> when, when I went into this, I thought the same thing. Um, but then I got into the school and realized, man, those years between, you know, first grade probably and somewhere around seventh grade are the golden years. Those are years you never get back. And the investment there is deeper in the soul. Uh, you see it in the kids. So we would take, for example, fifth graders. And start working with them on the Lord of the Rings, which you know that doesn't sound like a Christian book. Or why are we doing that? It it, it deeply seats in them an appreciation for God's world as J.R.R. Tolkien or C.S. Lewis. You know, we would use a lot of his works in in, in the in, in the schools as well. I could go on and on about all the the great classics of the 19th century, Rudyard Kipling, and others that we use. But these start to to etch into the souls of these young children. Images, thoughts, stories, uh, just sort of uh, what what has been called in this kind of a strange term, the moral imagination of kids is formed in those years. So that's when they start to order things uh, around them into the good and the bad. And you can do that using literature, using, uh, you know, teachers who are cultivated to train through the catechisms and other mechanisms, uh, you know, just really train these affections at that age. So I would say those age groups are the golden years, those younger ages.
0: All right. And then at some point, um, I'm going to get a question from listeners about sort of the application of this entire model to homeschooling. What's the relationship that you guys have at ACCS to maybe the homeschooling movement in America?
2: Well, we have uh, um, partnerships with organizations like um, Classical Conversations that provide a homeschool environment for this. Um, and of course, we have some homeschool members of our association. The, um, the real uh, inspiration in homeschooling is to find others who love the same thing and can help. Uh, work together with you in small communities to form up um, sort of a classical education co-op in in your area. The thing about classical education is it is pretty intensely social in that it it depends for example in in most of the secondary uh, the if you walked in one of our classrooms around the country you would see kids sitting around a big table instead of at desks and they're sitting there um, discussing Trying to parse and understand literature or history or or some philosophical question asked by the teacher, the teachers guiding him through that. So it helps for homeschoolers to be involved in a community where they can do the same thing, maybe in a local church or uh, at somebody's house uh, once a week and that kind of thing.
0: All right, so the next time you run into George Grant, he is
2: uh,
0: <laughs> head of school yeah, at the classical school with which I am most familiar. And, uh, and when you run into Davies Owens, um, please give him my personal greetings and affection. Those are two of my favorite well, guys in the world.
2: Thank you. And I think you and I had a chance to meet many years ago at uh, National Religious Broadcasters. So it's good we, to talk to you again.
0: We did. It's great to talk with you. David Goodwin, thank you so much for being with us. You guys need to check out classicalchristian.org. We'll be right back. So uh, I want you to... I want you to just draw some little person into mind right now. Not not a not a not a little person, but a person who is young. I want you to draw to mind right now. Allow the Lord to draw to mind um, some young person. So I'm thinking here, some some young person that is, you know, in primary school or early elementary or even preschool. All right. So so if you have that person in mind, I have one in mind. All right. And and now I want you to consider you don't even have to be related to them. I want you to consider your responsibility for that young person's, um, and I'm gonna use the word education here in a very broad way. Because you and I serve as mentors, we serve as models, we serve as mentors. We heard that yesterday from Dr. James Merritt. Like That's our role and our function in the lives of young people. We serve as um, as models and we serve as mentors. I also want you to consider that today, um, we, we also serve as people who can help provide for their educational experience in ways that maybe their parents cannot. So I want you to consider that for just a moment. How is God calling me to help provide for the robust education um, of, this, of this young person whom God has brought to my mind today? All right, so we have a whole other hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. We'll be right back.